Welcome to the Belltale Rugby Podcast with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendry. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Belltale Rugby. This week, obviously, we don't have much Ulster-related news as they are out for the season. But myself, Neve Campbell, the Belfast Telegraph's rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley, and the Bell Tales sports reporter, Adam McKendry, are going to be answering quite a lot of listener questions this week that you've all been sending us in online. Um, Somehow, with no Ulster action, we're still going to talk about Ulster for 45 minutes. Of course, this, the main. <laughs> we were wondering, you know, are, are we going are we to have much talking about today? But we have lots because uh, plenty of people have been sending in questions, especially on Twitter. Uh, and if anyone listening does want to follow us on Twitter and isn't already, it's at Belltale Rugby. We'll just jump in then, lads, will we? Go for it. Go for it. Nothing else to do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite literally. Um, so starting point. So Neil Anthony has asked you guys, can anything positive be taken from this season? With a strong start only for the wheels to fall off and then with somewhat of a recovery only for another disappointing finish to the season. Home quarter final, which should have been a home semi-final and we now see a final at home. Missed opportunity, question mark. Uh, I'll let you take that first yourself, Jonathan. It's definitely will feel like a missed opportunity in the same sense that last year did, but to an even sharper degree because, you know, the narrative coming out of last year's playoffs was, oh, if only we'd had that game at home, if only the referee had got the decision right in the original Stormers game, then this semi-final would have been in Belfast, everything would have been different. But I suppose as the players and coaches said themselves in the build-up to that Connacht game, Home advantage doesn't mean anything if you don't use it, and Ulster didn't. So for a side that prides themselves on their home record to now be sitting thinking all we had to do was win three games at home. Now, that's not to be dismissive of Connacht or the Stormers or Munster, but three home wins away from a piece of silverware that's eluded them since 2006, that has to go down as a massive, massive missed opportunity. Like... So much of the season, or I was going to say so much of the season, so much of the last decade plus, we've been talking about how do you win silverware when you swim in the same pool as Leinster? Well, there's two years in a row where you wouldn't have had to beat Leinster in the playoffs to win the league. So You think about the other time the final was at Ravenhill, it was Glasgow Munster as well. Yeah, yeah. It's... Yeah, like uh, to to get to the question itself, are, are there positives to take from the season? Yeah, we, we've discussed this on recent podcasts. You know, the emergence of Tom Stewart um, <laughs> managing to come back from the really tough stretch around December and January. There are positives to take from the season. I think just right now, it's very hard to sort of take a take a step back and take an objective view whenever you do have that disappointment of. Ulster could have been in a second consecutive final in Belfast, not against Leinster. There is that overwhelming feeling of they've blown two massive opportunities. And not not just to win a trophy full stop, but to win a trophy at home. Like Think of how many teams... Put, put Leinster aside because Leinster are obviously so dominant. But think about how many teams just in rugby in general get to win a trophy in front of their home fans. It's not actually a massive amount given neutral finals and 
you know teams coming from behind to to win away from home and, and things like that. Not too many teams actually get the chance to win in front of a partisan crowd that are cheering them on. Ulster have had two fantastic opportunities to do that over the last couple of years and they've blown both chances and that's got to sit really bad within the Ravenhill headquarters. Feeding off that as well, Donald O'Reilly has asked, I actually laughed at the end of this, two seasons in a row where Ulster could, capital letters, could have had a Leinster free run to a final. You guys have touched on that. And then Donald says, how thick can the scar tissue build before a major surgery or rehab is required? Whatever that involves, I've lost myself in this metaphor. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point in the sense that it doesn't feel like that long ago that this was a new team and there was an awful lot of talk of, well, we're not carrying the burden of these past knockout defeats because they weren't our knockout defeats. We haven't had them. We're not the team that kept getting beat by Leinster. We're not the team that's lost all these knockout games. Whereas if you take essentially Dan McFarlane coming into the job as the cutoff point between this era of Ulster and the past era of Ulster that had this sort of similar glass ceiling in terms of um, getting over the line to win silver. Like, I think it's nine knockout losses from 13. So that's a sizable number. And a big number of these are now starting to feel like missed opportunities we touched on um, last year and this year, but don't forget the Challenge Cup as well. Now, you can be derisory about the Challenge Cup and say um, it's a second-tier competition. Nobody would, re- you know, nobody remembers who wins the Challenge Cup apart from the team that wins it. But it would still be a piece of silverware. It would still be, I suppose, a mental hurdle cleared. So there is this idea now around this team, I think, that there is um, a building of what Donald calls scar tissue and the only way to eradicate that is to win. We've seen that historically with Leinster, we've seen it historically with Munster in terms of the European Cup and how it's a journey to win these things but obviously Ulster's journey seems a bit uh, circuitous at this point and they've done a loop or two in the map on the way to get there so it is going to be a big question and I think that like I sort of talked about this with Roy Best like last week. It's in going to be interesting to watch how they use it next season because the reality of it is Ulster can come back. All eyes will still be on the World Cup whenever their season starts. And they could win seven games in a row. They could win eight games in a row, whatever. But it's not going to make anybody believe that they're going to be better come May, June, July. Like, that's when they need to prove it. And that's a really long wait because I don't think we can get sucked into the trap again of thinking we can judge this team on what happens during the regular season because whether it is that mental block, the scar tissue that Donald talks about, the proof of the pudding is going to be in playoff games and big playoff games and winning those playoff games consecutively week to week to week to win silverware. Like... If we were to get to this time next year, or well, it'll be a little bit later because the season will be shifted, but if we were to get to this time next year and Ulster are in a quarterfinal of the league and have made the last 16 in Europe, 
that's not really going to prove anything to anybody because I mean I understand that Ulster came second but at the end of the day all you have to do to do that is finish eighth in a 16 team league and win one of your European games like that's not a test of a squad with the talent that Ulster has and where they should be so it's a long wait to be able to prove to the fans prove to the media prove to yourself that you have taken the strides you have taken your medicine whatever it is that you want to say and are, are a different team now coming into these knockout games than the one that we saw this year well th- think about Munster as the typical example Munster had a disastrous start to the season mm-hmm. people were calling for Ryan Tree to go whenever he was only about two or three months into the head coach job and now they're sitting in a URC final one game away from potentially winning a trophy having finished sixth in the league now what you can say is as much as you want about Leinster and the fact that they potentially you know to got their team selection wrong and and should have played their full team in in order to try and get through into the final whatever way you look at it Munster are in the final of the URC and they have done so by finishing the season really strongly. There was a point in the season where I think they were looking at people were saying, you know, they have to win like seven of their last eight games or something just to get into the playoffs, let alone, you know, be be in a a higher seeding. Even before they beat the Stormers, like before they beat the Stormers in South Africa, like we were talking about this monster team needs a result to yeah. get into next season's Champions Cup. Yeah. We're not talking about them as silverware contenders. But do you not think that's a disaster in terms of how it looks for Ulster? Oh absolutely. Like, new attack coach, new head coach, new defence coach. And all of a sudden they're closer to winning silverware than they have been at what, any time since Twenty fifteen, like I know they've got the finals since then, but nobody really expected them to do anything in them. Mm-hmm. Like I would say if you're looking at this at the end of the season, who has had a better season for Munster and Munster? You would honestly probably say Munster. I don't think you would probably say Munster. You <laughs> definitely say Munster. They're but, in a final. Yeah, they're in a final. But you, you you consider, you know, if if you had asked that exact same question back at the end, back when Ulster won down in Tillman Park, it wasn't their most convincing win of the season, but they won down in Tillman Park. Mm-hmm. Who do you have said was having the better season? They're, they're unquestionably Ulster. And not even, but not, it, not even that far back, but, Adam. Like yeah. if you were to ask this question in March or yeah, April, start of March. Like, like people would have been saying, "Well, of course Ulster are having a yeah. better season." Like for all that Ulster have had a bad run through December and January. Ulster's Champions Cup place wasn't really in danger. They flirted mm. with falling out of the top four. But, you know, Monster lost to the Dragons at the start of the season and people are looking at it being like, this team isn't going to make the playoffs, you know? So it's about timing your run to an extent, but it's also about showing that you can win those big mm-hmm. knockout games, which Monster have done. So that's why I, I completely agree with Johnny. Like, Ulster from now, and for the past few seasons, I would say as well, are judged on how they perform in April, May, June. You know, it's, as all good teams are, like, you like, know. Who, you could go back over the last few seasons, tell me about Ulster's big regular season wins. You could probably name one or two over the past four or five seasons, but ask them about their knockout games. Everyone remembers the Leicester game. Everyone remembers the games against Leinster, Toulouse. You know, you could rhyme off all those knockout disappointments and that's where they ultimately need to be judged 
every Ulster fan would trade finishing seventh in the league, or sorry, would, would trade finishing second in the league for finishing seventh in the league but reaching the final mm-hmm. and having a shot at at silverware. You know, how many fans are going to be sitting there saying we're happy for, that we you know improved our regular season finish? But we got dumped out in the quarterfinals at home. Nobody like, and that's that's the pressure that is slowly building on Ulster, and it should be internal. I know it is external, but Ulster are constantly getting into these positions where they're saying, you know, we've put ourselves in a good position, and then they're not capitalizing on it. They are very quickly regaining this reputation for always the bridesmaid, never the bride, and they're not even getting to the chapel to get married because they're not even reaching the final now. So there is a point where you've got to turn things around and say, it doesn't matter what we've done the regular season. Everything is based on the knockouts. Now, in the Champions Cup, it didn't help that they barely scraped into the knockouts and they they end up getting Leinster in the uh, the last 16. But certainly in the URC, they've not making the semi-finals for this team is well below expectations and not making the finals probably but well no it is below expectations as well because right now this team should be considering themselves second only to Leinster and they're not living up to their expectation whenever it comes to push comes to shove. Mega Hallgate has added a message that or added a question um, that sort of ties into that Adam and I know as well Johnny you had said that if you look at Munster's running then compared to Ulster it's, it's disastrous. I don't know if you think I mean Monster had a lot of injuries at the weekend and they definitely were were the bookies not not the bookies' favourites. Uh, they were fourteen points under underdogs, I think. Should that be should well number one should that be inspiring? But also Michael Hoggett has said, um Munster had a disastrous start to the season, but were able to get over the line. Leinster have one of the best clubs in the world. Ulster just don't have the same technical ability or flair to get over the line. Uh, and I don't think Billy Burns is the right man to lead the team. Were what changes need what changes need to come about to reach the same standard as the likes of Munster and Leinster? I don't think it's the coaches. I think it's the player ability. Discuss. <laughs> well, the difficulty is you can't change the players. Like that goes for any sport, I suppose, but it's doubly true in Irish rugby, where you're not going to get a better group of players because the only way to improve your squad by and large, is to go and find out who has an Irish granny or, you know. Mm. You're picking players from a very, very limited pool when you're only capable of having one or two genuine non-Irish qualified players. So I, I do enjoy whenever people come up and ask us, you know, like, who else you're going to be signing? And then whenever we say nobody, they, they don't have any slots available, they're like, what? Why are they not going out and signing this guy, that guy, and that guy? And it's like, well, the... There, there's only so many people they can sign. Like the, you, you can't go out and sign twenty All Blacks and just fill your team with twenty <laughs> All Blacks. As much as Ulster, I'm sure would love to do that. They I mean, they do, do have one of the best loose heads in the world coming. I think it's just, yeah, being forgotten. Not forgotten about, but people are so. It's been known for so long that it's like people have become desensitized to it. If they were to announce Stephen Kitchoff tomorrow then everybody would be like, yeah, that's the kind of statement signing they need to be making after mm-hmm. the absolute. Disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says something else. The absolute disaster <laughs> that was the end of the season. Did you need me to break beep, out the bleep? <laughs> A beep show. For, for me, where Ulster need to go from here, like Ulster's squad is not 
an untalented squad. Like I, I think that's something that is also getting lost in all this discussion, is that Ulster don't have a bad squad. Just because they've been knocked out in the quarterfinals does not mean they don't have talented players. Like we We have seen from this team that they have the flair, the technical ability. Like we're only two years removed, sorry, not even two years removed from that game in Claremont where we were all tripping over ourselves to praise them for the kinds of moves that they were pulling off. Marty Murr with his wee drop passes and uh, James Hume playing like a man possessed. You know, we're not that far away from whenever we were saying, do Ulster legitimately have the best backline in Europe? Mm. Now, there there have been extenuating circumstances this year as to why they haven't reached those heights again, down to injuries, loss of form, you know, various different players having different reasons why they haven't hit the same heights. But Ulster squad is still a talented squad and it's on paper probably still the second best squad in the URC. The difference is they just need to find a way to win the big knockout games. Like as Johnny says there, they've lost nine of their last 13 knockout games. And not all of those have been down to they've been beaten by the better team. A lot of them are down to Ulster have shot themselves in the foot or they haven't performed up to the standard required. So, And to put that stat in the context, you can't only lose two a year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just out of interest, whenever you say... Nine out of thirteen. Nine where, out of thirteen ties. So obviously that counts to lose as being two legged. Right. Sorry. That that's exactly the question I was going to ask. Like, where um, where does that factor in? Um, so the wins are Harlequins, Northampton, in the Challenge Cup, and two quarterfinals again. Sorry, one quarterfinal against Connacht, one quarterfinal against Munster. Yeah. So and he, even then, to to add a bit more context, Harlequins sent out a shadow side against them in the Challenge Cup. Northampton's wasn't massively better. So Ulster just... Uh, and look, I would love to sit here and say that I have the answer. I I think there's just some sort of mental block that I think has now permeated into this squad that they... I, I will agree that I don't think they had whenever they started to break through and whenever Dan first came in. I think now the weight of the knockout disappointments is starting to hold on them mm-hmm. and it's starting to hurt them whenever they're playing in knockout games now. Like the Leinster game earlier this year, I thought they played with a little bit more release and maybe it was the fact that they were massive underdogs. Nobody expected anything, that they were able to play a little bit more openly. Whenever the Connick game came on, they just buckled mm. and I think they need to find a way to take whatever they managed to put together for the underdog status whenever they played Leinster and like they didn't win that game so there's more they need on top of that but they need that kind of mindset to at least get themselves in a position where they can play like we know they can play and then potentially go on and win. They they, they need a big statement win in, in a knockout game, that's that's potentially for me what they need but where do they find that from goodness knows moving on more generally to how they actually play Donald again Donald O'Reilly has asked a few years ago pre-Dan McFarland era I remember asking a question to the podcast along the lines of what is Ulster's identity and style of play it felt like I knew how to answer that in recent seasons but this season I feel unsure again are Ulster having an identity crisis kick to the corner of the mall sir identity <laughs> Yeah, but I guess identity is about something more than that. You know, identity is about more than your 
style of play and it felt like whenever Dan McFarland first came in so that that era that era five years ago that uh, Donald's talking about you know you had that sort of the real hammering of that fight for every inch squeeze for every or squeeze every drop those sort of mantras that you don't really hear anymore um Sure. At one point, did they not have it like stitched into a yeah, collar it was, or something? Yeah, it was in the jersey or on the jersey. Yeah, I think Ulster's identity, and I think if you go back to, you know, the nineteen eighties team and stuff, I think part of that identity was their sort of otherness, if you like. And I think part of the identity is, uh, I suppose, having that chip in both shoulders sort of thing and I think that's what Ulster have to play up to like the reality is that while Munster fans can now point to the fact that they're in the final and Ulster haven't you know they might win the final um, we'll never live this down <laughs> <laughs> like Munster are seen as the second province to Leinster over the last 15 years, regardless of how good Ulster have been. And, you know, the game that Lancer take to the Viva is always the monster game, even when Ulster have been demonstrably the second best province. And I think that sort of siege mentality, even siege mentality within the province itself, you know, we've spent however many minutes here, we've been talking about how they can't win a big game and... Um, what's going wrong with them. And I think they need to really harness that next season. Like they talk an awful lot about being this band of brothers and how close knit the group is and how everybody's pulling for each other. And I think that they need to harness that in a way that propels them forward in a way that they do become this team that thinks that nobody believes in them, thinks that nobody assumes that they can win a knockout game, thinks that they're written off at Silverware time, thinks that they're written off in terms of the provincial hierarchy and try and get that sort of edge into their game because I think whenever we look at it, an edge, a spark was something that felt missing all season. Stephen Rosbottom, I really hope I'm pronouncing your surname right there, Stephen, sorry if not. Um, Touching on that again and adding on to it, he's asked, do you think Dan has to totally change our style of play for next season considering who has left the club and considering we will only have the two new additions to the squad, maybe three if Addison is back or will it be more of the same? Um, Stephen did add that he thinks that the style of play has been okay when we have clicked. An awful lot of our discussion this year is probably centred around them all. Are they using it too much? The argument for using it has obviously been why would you not use it when it's so effective? But it hasn't been effective in the big games. We talked about how realistically Ulster have lost five of their six biggest games this year. The the only outlier being that win against Sales. So I think they have to do something different. Like to get to the question, like they have to do something different because what they did this year didn't work, and it didn't not work by the bounce of a ball like we had last year. You know, it wasn't close to working this year in you know hindsight's a wonderful thing but when you reflect on the whole season it's not like they have this thing that they had a year ago where they could look at 
the decision against the Stormers in March and how the knock-on effect of that into the season, like, they didn't look close in that knockout game. They didn't look close really all season to being a side that were going to win Silver. And yes, you can point to the fact that neither did Munster, but here they are 80 minutes away. But I think if you have a season like that and if you have a season where it looks like in the big games you've been all far away from winning them, then you need to, if not reinvent the wheel, then certainly change the tyre. The only, the only thing I'll add to that is that Ulster don't Ulster, you know, have to work their way into the twenty two. You know, they they don't maul their way just up the pitch the whole way. But you know, have we seen enough from the backs this year that has gotten them into that position? No, and I I do think a lot of that comes down to just where is the where is the pack's strength outside of them all? You know, do they have big carriers? No. Do they have efficient ruck speed compared to other teams? Not as good as other teams. So, for me, whenever you're you're looking, you're completely right with the with the plan B. The problem is Ulster don't really seem keen to show off that they have a plan B. And the thing is, there are times this season where they have seen, we have seen them produce a plan B. Like Ulster do still have that cutting edge, but they just haven't used it enough during the season and that is because they have that over reliance on them all so whether the ruck speed the ruck speed that you mentioned is a good point like I don't think that gets talked about enough the fact that their ruck speed statistically according to Opta <laughs> is nowhere near in line with their position in the table yeah and in the modern game and we saw it in the in the Connacht game where their back row was faster and in in, in at the professional level, you're talking milliseconds. You know, we're we're not talking you know, like Ulster's back row are one second later to a ruck. It's that they're half a second or a quarter of a second slower to a ruck, and that's the difference between getting turned over or getting the ball back or getting the ball away before the defensive line is set or before or as you know after the defensive line is set. So it's it's little tiny things, but they make such a big difference. And is that, you know, do Ulster's back row need to work on their fitness this season so that they are that fraction of a second faster to every ruck? Potentially. Is it that the backs need to be saying, you know, we need to be trying more moves? Well, Ulster aren't short of, you know, trying a few moves. It's just that they don't have the space to work in. You know, Ulster's style of play or what what they want to try to do or what they say they want to try and do is the kind of play that, should benefit the wingers massively. How many times have we come away from a game this season thinking this winger had a good game? And whenever I say good game, I mean, you know, he really stood out. Jacob Stockdale sort of forced his way into the conversation by a few of his performances at the end of the season, which were very impressive. But how many times have we looked at an Ulster winger and gone, you know what, he had a really great game. And this isn't a slight on the wingers, by the way. It's more a slight on the other players because... In order for a winger to thrive, the other players need to give him space to work in. So wingers are very much dependent on the kind of ball they're getting in order to impress. And for too many games this season, Ulster's wingers have been fairly anonymous. 
whenever you look at the names that they've got in that squad, Balakoon, Stockdale, McElroy, Little, Sexton with a speed could be running in tries for fun. And you can probably look back and count on your hand how many individual performances from wingers this season were real standout performances. Going back to signings, Mark Murhead has asked, is there no word on Ian Henderson's contract after that finish to the season? It would be pretty demoralising for a captain to be leaving. Have you heard anything, Johnny? Yeah, I mean, I keep hearing this is going to be done, but like... In the grapevine. Yeah, you know, it's halfway through May and it's... I genuinely thought it would be announced a month ago. What, what is it? What is the hold-up, do you think? What's the issue? The issue will be um, ironing, <laughs> ironing out the fine details, I suppose. Like... You know, if he wants to stay and the RFU want them to stay, that's the big thing. Obviously, they need to find a meeting point in terms of the salary. But, like, whenever you're talking about the season is over, the World Cup training camp starts in a month. You know, Henderson can't go to a World Cup without a contract. Yeah. So we'll have to know before the end. <laughs> yeah. Like, people can expect it. Purely in it. terms of insurance and whatnot you know you have to be playing with a contract what is the record for shortest contract ever signed because I feel like we might be no well this this, like this has happened before where players sign deals up until the World Cup yeah but I'm imagining like are are we heading towards a situation where Ian Henderson signs like a two month contract or something (laughs) no like that's what I'm saying like that has happened before at the end of a season people sign extensions to get them to a World Cup now a while ago admittedly but um Look, I still think he's going to stay. We keep hearing that he's going to stay. The fact that it's not announced is weird, especially given that surely over the last 10 days, optics-wise, somebody looked at it and thought, that's a province that needs some good news. Throw them a bone. Announce this, you know? I'd still be massively surprised if he goes elsewhere, but that's where we are. It's a good column headline. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. It has been nice. Um, Just this season as a whole. It's been weird. <laughs> weird and not so wonderful at the end. Um, SK Martin has said, with Tom Stewart Harry, and Harry Sheridan, Sheridan pardon me, making massive impacts this season and glimpses of what Jude Postlewith, I can never get his name right, may offer, is there anyone from the Academy who might get Ulster fans excited next season? Um... Scott Wilson might have to. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if you if you were to bet on somebody playing, it would be Scott. He's uh, somebody making too. a debut, it would be Scott Wilson. In a separate question, he said, "Is Scott is Scott Wilson expected to step up next season?" Um, Again, he might have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I still think Andy Warwick will be the third choice tight end. That is the plan. That makes sense in terms of what they have in the squad available, and also makes sense in terms of the fact that they re-signed. Um, the number of loose heads that they'll have. So, you know, they're not going to go in with four loose heads and two tight heads if one of the, sorry, four senior loose heads, if you count Callum Reid as a senior player, and two loose heads when Andy Warwick can play tight head. Um, and essentially, <clears throat> we always knew Tamanga Allen was leaving. And in any number of games throughout the latter half of the season, Andy Warwick was being picked ahead of Milosinovic anyway. So, you know, they could re-sign Milosinovic and it wouldn't actually alter the pecking order, really, let's be honest. But I understand why people are um, worked up about it. But 
Um, in terms of the academy, like James McNabney, maybe like you're looking at players here in the position that say Harry Sheridan was in a year ago. Um, McNabney's probably one of those. Like the difficulty for Ulster is going to be that an awful lot of academy players, certainly in Wales, are going to get time in October and November. And it's not really particularly clear. I'm surprised we didn't get a question about this, actually. How many Ulster players we think will be at the World Cup? So Ulster squad might not have that many holes in it compared to the other um, teams in the ERC during those early months, which might limit the opportunities for some academy players mm-hmm. to, to get games. Like The big thing for Ulster is going to be the likes of Stuart, the likes of McCann, the likes of... Yes, even Postle through it um, and Sheridan to all kick on. Like, sometimes we can point to guys like Keelan Doris, say, who's 24, and say, right, well, he's been one of Ireland's best players for two years, so by 24, we need these guys to be that. And that's obviously not fair, but, like, you look at the ERC Dream Team this year, like, Niall Murray's 24, the Connaught lock. Scott Penny's 24. Gavin Coombs is 25. So there's, you know, three forwards. That's the level that those guys now need to be pushing up to, more so, I think, than seeing more academy players come through. It's those guys building on this season. And even, like, the young backs that are still young, despite the fact that we view them as very senior players now, getting back to a level where they're knocking on the door for Ireland rather than um, us having this conversation of how many Ulster players are going to go to the World Cup. SK Martin also asked, um, as part of that question too, with two tight heads leaving and only two tight heads left, Murren O'Toole, with the latter likely to be with the Ireland squad, does this indicate that there are any more signings still to be announced? Probably not. It's only going to be minor signings. um, At this stage anyway. As it always is, like with the exception of, you know, Billy Burns and Henry Spate come in quite late, but obviously Vermeulen is the uh, the classic example, but your squad building is done in November, mm-hmm. December. Like you're not, it's not football, you're not building a squad now. It's um, just as I said there, the plan to my mind is that Andy Wark will be the third choice tight head. Mm-hmm. As he essentially was last year once Marty Murray got injured. It's not as big a change as it's being made out to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve McCormick, in terms of finances, and he says he, he's, he's fine with just a yes or no answer to this. Have you sought an interview with the CEO of Ulster? He is now key, as in my opinion, finances will be very tight going forward, post pitch gate, etc. Strategy now is to squeeze the... And he's done a wee lemon emoji. <laughs> Um, a yes or no answer if I give a yes 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 answer would that maybe indicate how many times I've tried does Stephen want to come work for, work for us as well um, yes it's, it's not for a lack of asking not for a lack of time do, do you get do you get replies or is it just a bit of oh no time at the minute or oh, well I think the first time it was like it was the La Rochelle game and I was like yeah no problem like after the game and then after the game it didn't happen and then after that like on the Monday it was we have to wait 
um, until after the review. And as we talked about in previous podcasts, if we hadn't asked, if the if we hadn't asked EPCR if the review was finished, I don't think we'd ever have found out that it was finished. And then scheduling didn't work out. Scheduling conflict, maybe. Um, Being ghosted by. <laughs> well, well, it's not even. It's obviously not like I'm not going direct to. Okay, yeah, it's Johnny awesome, Petrie. Yeah. We don't no, have, you know. So I can't even say for certain that these requests are put to him. Um, but I'm still waiting on. Just whenever you talk about being ghosted, I am still waiting for a reply to my most recent request. I know. I think for anyone listening, um, I think because a lot of my friends say to me too, they think like journalists can just go directly to like, you know, we have like Rishi Sunak on Speeddale and stuff like that. In general, it's like it, you have to go through a lot of bureaucracy to get these people, and often you don't receive um, yeah. call- callbacks from lots of them, not just Johnny Petrie. <laughs> That's only changed very recently in terms of Ulster rugby. Like, not it in my time covering them, but like if you talk to Michael, like Michael will. Like, Michael remembers ringing, like, the coach after a game and that not being considered mm. strange. Yeah. Mm. Or, yeah. like, if you needed to talk to a player, ringing up a player. Like, if I were, like, if I, if I were to ring up Ian Henderson, he would be like, why Why are you calling me? Yes, 100%. <laughs> well, it's like, it's not he, he might not use such polite language. Well, yeah. <laughs> Henry might not actually realise that it's the kind of thing that you shouldn't be doing. But, um, Usually the PR people, not just in this, but also rugby in general, the PR people come back and say, you never go through them, you go through yeah, us directly, yeah. put them in uncomfortable positions, because um, that's where they're there. That's where they have jobs. Um, so, and on that same, same note, Colombo has said, given we don't have the budget to actually complete a squad for next season, and this is Colombo's own words, this is his own opinion. How many hundreds of thousands of pounds must Petrie burn before he's shown the door? Context, resorting to inviting tight head to train pre-season due to inability to sign a pro. An AIL, sorry. Tight head to train pre-season due to inability to sign a pro. Yeah, well, like, that is bang on. Like, they will as far as I'm aware, have a fella up from Clontarf that they will be taking a look at from um, the All-Ireland League. He played in the final, actually, if anybody watched that game against uh, Terranier when it was on TV there a couple of weeks ago. What um, a kicking performance, by the way. Just throw that in from uh, Keelan Dooley. Uh, I watched it in the pub before Bruce Springsteen, so you probably have more <laughs> more, more of a handle on it than I did. But... Um, I was very close to it, obviously, because Springsteen was in the RDS and the game was in the Aviva. But um, how much, like, this is actually a good question in the sense that an awful lot of people tend to um, assume that the CEO carries the can for things that happen on the pitch, which isn't true or sh- shouldn't be true anyway. Like, um, But... Where the CEO does and always will carry the can is in the financial. So if there's a hole in the balance sheet. So that is the responsibility of Johnny Peter's position. And obviously, as has been um, poured over in great detail, there will be a hole in the balance sheet from La Rochelle um, debacle and... Listen back to former podcasts for yeah, more info. Yeah, I mean, without dredging up whose yeah. fault that is, um, somebody will have to answer for that eventually, presumably. Where, where are the lines between 
CEO not having an influence on on pitch matters and uh, does where it blurs slightly is the fact that Ulster could have had a home semi final in the URC. They could have had a home final. While I know that the URC take a certain proportion, technically it's their game. It's not Ulster's game, but you know you still have benefits for Ulster for hosting it. And they could have had a home final last year as well. Now, benefit of hindsight, they didn't know at the time that they were going to have the La Rochelle issue back then. But having that would have massively helped going into this year. As much as the CEO, yes, does not have any influence on the on pitch situation on pitch is a bad phrase for us to be using here because obviously the pitch you know you know there there is also a (laughs) replacing the pitch situation about to go on as well that's not going to be cheap but also the buck stops with him you know he's the one who oversees Bryn Cunningham who oversees Dan McFarland who oversees the team you know there is sort of a line of succession here and Johnny Petrie is ultimately the one who is questioning you know well Bryn why have we not reached the final of the URC why are we why do we not have silverware Bryn is the one who questions Dan McFarland why have we not got silverware this year and Dan McFarland is the one who questions the players why have you not led us to silverware this year and you know that's sort of the line of succession of questioning of how you've gotten to this point and as much as Johnny Petrie is not directly responsible for what's going on in the pitch. He is the one who's calling the shots in terms of do we have the right people in place to lead us to silverware? And by extension, that leads to games at Ravenhill, which brings in more money. It leads to potential financial rewards in terms of more TV money because they're playing in later stages of games. So the... I don't wholly agree with the fact that, you know, the the CEO should be completely removed from the rugby side of things. As much as I do agree that his primary role is not to oversee that side of things and it is much more important for him to focus on the business side and the overall financial side of things, that I completely agree on. But the actual rugby side of things does form a big part of that. So I think there's certainly an argument that he does carry a bit of the weight of what's going on on the pitch. Moving away from the listener questions, because we have loads, and we can come back to the next week. I'm um, just conscious of time, as we always are. Uh, we just wanted to touch on the the history making Ireland women's seventeen. They qualified for the Olympics at the weekend, and they arrived home yesterday to great fanfare in Dublin. Uh, a ten five win over Fiji in the World Rugby Seven Series fifth place semi final sent them to the France Olympic Olympics next summer. Uh, great news. Johnny, given obviously just the sort of disappointing Six Nations campaign that the the women had, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a um, big gamble, I suppose, to divert so much of their talent to the Sevens game. And given the Six Nations that they had, that would have been dug up again had they failed in their objective to qualify for the Olympics. Personally, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the Olympic bid captures the imagination because this is all very personal stuff. I suppose it's what people, people's viewing habits, what they do and don't want to watch is a very personal thing. But like Ireland is obviously a 15th country rather than a 7th country. That goes without saying. But the Olympics for an awful lot of people 
I know rugby's only been in it for this is the third cycle, but the Olympics for a lot of people does not mean rugby. Like mm-hmm. it means athletics, it means swimming. Um, we even see that with like superstar names and, you know, golf and things like that. Um, so it'll be interesting to me, I think, to see how big an impact it makes in comparison to the other, well, the the rest of Team Ireland, I suppose, that will be at these Olympics in Paris um, next summer. I think for the maybe the women girl aspect, I suppose it's good because it'll be televised and I think young girls will see that and think, yeah, maybe I'll try rugby as well instead. Yeah, for sure. But it's whether it actually ends up being televised because there's oh, yeah. so much well, else that's true. happening, you know. Streamed if, online, perhaps. Okay, yes, yeah, is obscure. everything not shown at this stage like the, the Olympics yeah yeah on the, yeah, on the red button and on Eurosport and stuff oh, but yeah. you know what I mean like to use golf as the example like don't you disparage golf now? <laughs> no I'm not disparaging <laughs> golf but it's hard to compete with like especially in a country like Ireland where boxing takes a really exa- main stage yeah, that, yeah. they're so successful in that's that. exactly what I'm thinking like if the rugby is on at the same time as the boxing the boxing's on TV Unless you're seeking out the rugby, like because mm-hmm. people do not immediately associate the mm-hmm. Olympics with rugby. I understand that it's only been in for, as I say, these three cycles, but it's a massive, massive effort, I think, to change that perception and to success changes all of these things. Like if you win a medal, then it becomes a big deal. We mm-hmm. see that in all manner of sports come the Olympics, but. Um, I think people's viewing patterns in the Olympics are probably more traditional than I think sometimes they're given credit for. I I do think a lot of people will turn on the Olympics and say they're watching the Olympics, but they've just got the main coverage on and Mm -hmm. the main coverage is 90% track and field or depending on whether there's track and field going on like as it should be because that's the yeah. pinnacle of the sport like anything and that's why I mentioned golf anything where an Olympic medal is not the pinnacle of your sport mm. is going to suffer but like boxing is an interesting point because I suppose it's not but the boxing I feels so compelling it's because it's, a lot of the amateur boxers then go on to have really successful professional careers mm. I think that's you know yeah. the case for that but sorry got, no um, I was just going to say correct me if I'm wrong but an Olympic gold would be the pinnacle of a, an amateur boxer's oh, career 100% and a lot of a lot of people sort of stay in the amateur game un, until they reach that mm-hmm. Michael Conlon obviously didn't because he was <laughs> we found it since Rob but then arguably that controversy propelled him to, to bigger heights in his in his pro mm-hmm. career then um, so yeah no 100% like I think people forget Michael Jordan has an Olympic medal like in basketball, people, you know, it's not the pinnacle of his career no. <laughs> by any means. Like when, whenever you go yeah, back, through, yeah, yeah, you go like, back through Michael Jordan's career, you're you're maybe mentioning all the MVPs and the uh, the NBA titles, the the Olympic medals do go a bit. But I, I th- like the dream team is a big thing. Um, yes, but, to, but that to, came off the back of I suppose America losing. Um, in basketball, which yeah. shocked them to mm. their core to the point where they were like, right, we're going to get all of our best players and Christian Lehner. Um, <laughs> no shade to Christian Lehner. That was, that was unfair. I don't know why I said that. Um, Poor guy. To he go can he slid on some rugby podcast? <laughs> 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 he hopefully never listened to it. He hopefully never listened to it. Um, but in the same way, I suppose that Katie Taylor, I'm actually going to Katie Taylor's fight on Saturday, um, in the same way that she has done so much for to propel female boxing in the way because it wasn't allowed you know in the Olympics until like 
was it 2012 when she joined mm-hmm. and um, you know she propelled that by you know maybe the Ireland women's team she made history maybe they can make history too Absolutely like Ireland well I suppose everybody like loves winners so I think if they go and medal and they have said that that is their goal then it picks up but like so it's, it's to be seen it's yet to be seen Yeah exactly <laughs> you know like do we really do we know what benefit the men qualifying for the last one had not yet mm. Um it certainly wasn't that big a deal in terms of I'm sorry, it was a massive deal for them to qualify. But once you got to the Olympics and once you got to the I suppose mainstream general coverage, again, it was of what we would always associate as Olympic sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's a classic example of, you know, think how many people took up ice skating after Torvald and Dean. Mm-hmm. Think about how many people went down to their local athletics club and started running after watching Usain Bolt. It's <clears throat> if you can see it, you can be it. That kind of thing, you know. Of if you watch the Ireland women's team being successful, then you will want to go down to your local rugby club and go. I want to give this a go, and it, that's that's the only way that that's going to happen. Which is that they get coverage, they get eyeballs on them. And then you see a bit of a spark after that. And Johnny's right; you, you won't actually see like tangible results. And look, the, it'll be the, years uh, until you do because it'll be so, young people. But, this, but the this, important this is point here is that they would get, or they would be more of it. People think that they would be more visible if they were playing for the 15s during a Six Nations because people, yes, associate that, yes, with rugby whereas people do not associate the Olympics with rugby so that's the argument it's not just mm. being like oh well we dismiss this great achievement because nobody cares about sevens the overarching argument is whether it would be more beneficial to the women's game if this visibility or if these star players were visible during a Six Nations rather than being fourth on the red button come the yes. Olympics and that is going to be your column whenever it comes <laughs> round which is yeah the Olympic Rugby Sevens competition will run from the 24th to the 30th of July 2024 at the Stade de France um, remember that you can catch up on all the latest news views and analysis obviously not too much about Ulster at the minute um, but about everything <laughs> else and, and the upcoming World Cup on belfasttelegraph.co.uk or pick up the paper and until next week we'll answer the rest of the listener questions next week also by the way and if you have any more send them our way at Belltail Rugby so for me, Johnny and Adam, thanks for listening. Bye.